Welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast. If you love tennis and want to improve your game, this podcast is for you. Whether it's technique, strategy, equipment, or the mental game, tennis professional Ian Westerman is here to make you a better player. And now, here's Ian. Hi, and welcome to episode number 11 of the Essential Tennis Podcast. The Essential Tennis Podcast is the podcast for people who love tennis. I'm here week after week trying to help you guys improve your tennis game, whether it's through technique or the mental game or equipment or strategy. I'm here to give you guys advice to help you get better at the sport that you love, which is tennis. Through good advice, you can improve your game. All you need to get to become a better player is to improve one aspect of your tennis game any of the four aspects I mentioned earlier, if you can improve one thing about any of those four aspects of your tennis game, you will become a better player. And that's what the Essential Tennis Podcast is all about. I'm here to help everybody listening become a better player through good advice. And that's why I'm here. Uh, And that's why you guys are here. If you downloaded this podcast and you're listening, that means that you've taken the time to uh, invest your your thought and invest your time to sit down and because you, you love tennis, you want to pursue it, and you want to become better at it. And so thank you for taking the time to sit down and listen and also to, to download the file. Hopefully, the advice that you get during this hour or so, uh, you can implement and you yourself can also improve. Every week, I'm getting more emails back from people saying that the advice they got on this podcast has made them a better player. And that's really, really exciting, both for the players who are improving and for myself as well. It's great that I'm, I'm able to help people improve just sitting here in front of my computer and answering the great questions that you guys send every week. Okay, a couple announcements here before we get to the questions for today. First of all, I'd like to thank everybody who's who's gone over to the iTunes Music Store and left a review of the Essential Tennis Podcast. I've been asking you guys to do that over the last couple weeks, and last week the number of reviews doubled. We're up to 16 now, and that's great. I I really appreciate everybody who's taken the time to do that. I offered a free set of strain last week for anybody who would go over there and leave a comment and send me their address. I want everybody to know who has sent me their address. Those strings are going to be mailed out soon, uh, so don't worry, you'll be, you will be receiving those. And also, I'd like to extend the offer for another week. Anybody who is going to take the time to go over to the iTunes Music Store and leave me a comment, uh, a review for the podcast, simply go to EssentialTennis.com and go to the feedback page and just type in the comment that you left and your screen name and give me your name and address and I will I will mail you a free set of strain. Uh, it's head tennis strain. It's a multi-filament uh, strain. It's good touch and good control. I think the retail on those is usually about $15 a set, uh, maybe $20 a set. So uh, you can get a free set of those strains simply by leaving me a review on the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for everybody who's done that so far. Secondly, I last week spent a lot of time at the end of the podcast number 10 talking about mental tennis and had a great question about that last week about conquering fear and conquering anxiety and nerves and choking. And I I made a big plug for a book called Mental Tennis by Vic Braden. And a couple of you have emailed me and told me that uh, you're, you're, you're looking for a copy of that book. Well, I've made a deal with the publisher of Mental Tennis, and I have a shipment of those books coming to me. And so hopefully sometime next week, possibly by Podcast 12, I'm going to have copies of Mental Tennis by Vic Braden available on EssentialTennis.com. Um, I'm going to have some kind of deal for you guys there for the first couple people who order a copy from me. I'm going to probably probably provide free shipping. Um, but I just wanted to let you guys know, if, if some of you guys have been looking for it, 
I'm going to have copies available, new paperback paperback copies of the book. I'm going to have them available on men's, on EssentialTennis.com probably starting next week. So just wanted to let you guys know about that. And lastly, uh, something that I think is pretty exciting, starting next week, uh, we're going to have a guest on the Essential Tennis Podcast. He's been a listener of the podcast, and he's a medical doctor, and he specializes in sports medicine. Uh, his name is Dr. Jack Kripsack. He's a primary care doctor, and he's a board-certified sports medicine specialist. And he's going to do about a 10-minute segment with me or so on podcast number 12, answering any questions you guys might have about injuries or possibly hydration, what, what to eat or drink before you go out and practice or play. Um, if you have problems with tennis elbow or maybe you have shoulder problems, knee problems, uh, and any kind of, of injury-related question or uh, physical-related question, um, send me a question this week. And next week, Dr. Kripsack is going to be our guest on the podcast. So here's another way that you guys can get good information. Dr. Kripsack is, is a specialist in, in sports medicine, and he can give you some good information if you have questions about your body and playing tennis. So again, go to EssentialTennis.com, go to the feedback page, and simply leave me a message there using the form, and put something in your question saying that it's a question for Dr. Kripsack next week. Um, and that way you guys can get some more information uh, from a good, reliable source. All right, let's get to the first question today on the Essential Tennis Podcast. Our first two questions come from Chris in Bethesda, Maryland. And I actually know Chris. He's a member at the club where I teach, so it was cool to hear from him. This is actually the, the first question from somebody that I actually know uh, from my job. Um, and so Chris has two questions. His first one is, why are my abs sore the following day after I play tennis? I'm sure it's from serving, but I try to do ab workouts at the gym. Does it have anything to do with stretching or flexibility? The pros serve a lot harder than I do and do it for a whole tournament. Obviously, I'm missing something. All right, well, good question, Chris. And just so you guys know, Chris is a 4.5 player. He's, he's one of the stronger players that we have um, at, at the club where I teach. And I believe he's around my age. He's, he's kind of uh, mid-20s. Um, so he, he's a younger guy. He's got a strong all-around game. And he, and he has a pretty big serve. I've, I've played against him before. Now, Chris, uh, to answer your question, no. <laughs> you're not missing something. Yes, your, should, your abs should be sore the day after playing at a high level. Um, a, a high level serve takes a good amount of core strength. You're using your core muscles a great deal uh, to, to provide that big of a hit. Um, Chris is capable of hitting a, a, at least a 100 mile an hour serve um, or a slower pace serve with a lot of spin and kick. Um, and that takes a great deal of strength from the core. Not only, if you guys watch on TV, if you guys watch the pros hit, not only are they rotating um, across a vertical axis, turning their body to the side, um, you'll see most players set up perpendicular to the baseline. Their shoulders are 90, deg 90 degrees to the baseline. And as they put their toss up, if you're, if you're looking with the camera angle facing their, their back um, or behind the server, as they put their toss-up into the air, you will see them rotate further so that you can actually see most of the front of their shoulders and their chest. So they're turning to face the camera behind them with their upper body. When they make contact, their shoulders and chest are facing the net. So they're making a 180-degree rotation with their upper body towards the ball. As they swing upwards towards the ball, they're making a full 180-degree rotation with their upper body. That takes a lot of core strength, and the abs are used a great deal to, to provide the torque to rotate their entire core forwards towards the ball. Not only that, uh, not, not only are they making a 180-degree 180 de rotation 
with their upper body, but they're also tilting their shoulders back. Um, I, I read an article recently. I can't remember where it was. I think it was online someplace. But a tennis instruction website was measuring the angle of their sh of different players' shoulders um, relative to the ground. And if just standing straight with a horizontal shoulder plane is zero degrees, if that's level with or, per or parallel with the ground, uh, most players, when they put their toss up, they will tilt their shoulder uh, plane back to about 60 or 65 degrees relative to the ground. That's, that's a pretty big angle. So not only are they rotating their body back towards the camera, back, uh, back behind them to make a 180 degree rotation towards the ball uh, around forwards, but they're also tilting their upper body back to make about a 60 degree angle with the plane of their shoulders. So those two things combined take a great deal of core strength. And Chris, I'll tell you that when I go out and play, and I, I probably, these days I probably play about uh, about once a week, maybe four, four times a month or so. Um, that's the first thing that gets sore for me is my abs. Um, and I'm, I'm left-handed, and so my right side is what gets sore. I'm tilting back and rotating back my, my whole body. And as my body tilts back and gets pulled up again, it's the right side of my abs that are pulling my core back up and accelerating my core towards the ball, which is above me. And so that takes a lot of core strength. Uh, and Chris actually is left-handed as well. So Chris, I would venture to say your right side is what's getting more sore, or possibly just your right side is getting sore. Um, and, and that's why. So anybody out there who's right-handed and making a pretty big serve, most likely your left side of your abs is, is probably more defined than your right. Uh, and that was the case for me in college. It actually still is the case for me now. Um, and I did a lot of, in, in college, um, let's see, we, we had regular practice five times a week for somewhere between two and three hours playing at a very high intensity level. Um, and in addition to the, those minimum of 10 or 15 hours a week of playing and practicing at a high level, um, I would typically also lift weights three or four times a week. Um, and even sometimes then I would, I would get a little sore. Uh, my abs would get a little sore from the, just the repetition of serving over and over and over. Um, so Chris, there's nothing wrong with you. That's totally normal. For you to not be sore at all, you would really have to target that area and really work it very, very hard. And this is a testament to how good a shape professional players are in. Um, they do get sore, but not nearly as much as those of us who don't play and practice and train every day uh, to play at a high level. It's really a lot of work and you know, Chris, you're just you're just finding out how much work it is to play it consistently at a high level. All right, our next question from Chris is: When returning serve with a one-handed backhand, what grip do you weight with? Do you switch the grip in real time depending on where the serve goes? Well, that's a really good question, Chris. And I I talk to players about this all all the time in my teaching. Um, what I used to do. Uh, it was weight with a continental grip, which was in between what I used for my forehand and what I used for my backhand. I would use more of an eastern backhand grip for my one-handed backhand. And for my forehand, I used a semi-western grip. So that would switch my hand down towards the bottom of, of the handle. And I used to weight in between those two grips. And then as the serve came towards me, I would switch one way or the other depending on which shot I was about to hit, a forehand or a backhand. Um, in college, my coach noticed this and quickly told me that I should be waiting with one or the other. And that should be specifically whichever one you want to hit more. And for me, that was my forehand. My forehand ground stroke is quite a bit better than my backhand. And so I began waiting already with a forehand grip because that way, any, forehand, any shots that came to my forehand side, 
I was already prepared with my grip. I didn't have to do any messing around uh, with my hand, and I was already ready to go. If it came to my backhand, then I would make a switch over to my backhand grip and then my, make my swing. But the way I was doing it before, waiting with a continental grip, was I, I had to make a switch no matter what. If it came to my forehand, I was going to have to switch my grip. If it came to my backhand, I was going to have to switch my grip. And so I was losing time that I could be setting up for the ball. Uh, I was making things a little more complicated than, than it had to be. And my, my return did get better when I started waiting with my forehand grip. Uh, I began positioning myself more aggressively to get more forehands. Um, and my opponents knew that. They knew I was trying to get as many forehands as possible. And that, that puts more pressure on the server as well. Now, any of you who are playing at a 4.0 level or above, I pretty much 100% uh, recommend this. Waiting with whichever whichever stroke that you feel more comfortable and confident with, I would recommend waiting with that grip um, and then doing whatever is possible to try to hit that, that stroke after the serve has been hit to you. And if it goes to the other side, then make, make your switch uh, to the grip over on the other side uh, on the other side of your body. Now, if you're a lower level player, um, meaning beginner up through 3.0 or 3.5, if you're a, a beginner or an intermediate player, I don't think there's anything wrong with waiting in between and switching back and forth depending on what you get because you're not seeing very big serves yet. Uh, it, it was necessary for me to make that change because I was very commonly seeing 110 120 mile an hour for serves and so I was wasting precious time having to switch every single time to one grip or the other. Now if you're a 3.0 player and you're seeing 50 or maybe 60 mile an hour serves, uh, you have twice the amount of time to prepare and so it might not be that crucial. So if you're a beginner or an intermediate level player, I don't think it's really necessary to have to wait with one or the other. In fact, you might use the same grip for both sides, and, and that's fine. Um, as you continue to progress in your game, you'll probably start turning your, your grip a little bit more aggressively to one side or the other for your forehand and your backhand. And at that point, I would probably recommend that you wait with whichever grip you typically are more comfortable hitting, your forehand or your backhand. That doesn't mean you're going to hit all one or the other, but you're going to be prepared for one side and then have to make a switch for the other rather than making a switch for both your forehand or your backhand. Um, Chris, hopefully that those two answers uh, are good and they make sense. Hopefully those answer your questions. Um, the other reason why not waiting in the middle is good, I'm sorry, the other reason why waiting in the middle is not as good is it's going to force you to hit a more defensive shot more often. Um, when I was waiting with a continental grip and I got a big serve coming my way, uh, I would often just keep the continental grip and just hit a, a slice back and just kind of chip it back. And at the level I was playing, that oftentimes was not good enough. And so switching over to a forehand to wait with was giving me the opportunity to swing more aggressively and more confidently at more returns. And so it made me a better doubles player, especially. This isn't quite as crucial in singles, where you can get away a lot of times with just blocking it back in play and getting into the point. But at intermediate or high-level doubles, uh, waiting with a continental grip and then getting caught without enough time to make a swing and just blocking the ball back, that oftentimes won't be good enough. And Chris, I know the level of play that, that you're at, and I would recommend that you wait with your forehand grip, which is your more confident swing. And by the way, we'll have to talk later why, why you asked about one-handed backhand specifically. Chris has been playing around with hitting a one-handed backhand instead of his two-hander. And uh, I've told him a couple times, I think he should probably stick with his two-hander. But anyway, Chris, hopefully that, that answers your questions, and I'm sure I'll be talking to you soon at the club. All right, our next question for today comes from Bruce. Bruce is in Florida, and he's a 4.0 player. His question is, where do you like to position yourself for serving in singles and in doubles? 
you change position during a match? Thanks for the question, Bruce. Well, in singles, I very often, I, I usually stand right next to the hash mark, uh, the small cent, uh, mark right in the center of the baseline. And that's usually where I hit all of my serves from in singles. That's typically where you'll see players serve from because it very simply puts you right in the middle of the court to, to begin the point as soon as your serve is done. So it just kind of makes the most amount of sense as far as positioning yourself to begin the point. Now, if you're trying to aim for different parts of the box, sometimes moving yourself around can give you a better angle to, uh, to a specific target that you're trying to hit. The more you move towards the center, towards the hash mark, uh, the, the better angle you have to hit at the tee, right down the middle of the court to your opponent's side. And the more you place yourself out towards the side, the outside of the court, the better, ang- uh, the better shot you have to hit an angle out wide uh, to the corner, to the outside corner of the service box over on your opponent's side. So if your opponent, for example, is right-handed and they have a very weak backhand return, then on the deuce side, you could position yourself right next to the hash mark to get the best angle possible to serve down the tee to their backhand. And over on the ad side, you could position yourself a little bit farther to the left, a little bit farther out wide to the, uh, to the ad side corner to try to hit a better angle out wide to get to their backhand side over on the ad side of the court. That's uh, a singles example there. Now, myself personally, uh, I have done a lot of practice on placing my, my serves, both my flat serve and the various spin serves I use. I've worked hard on being able to place all of those serves in any part of the, the box I might need to hit uh, basically from any position on the court, from serving behind the baseline. I, I would recommend working on placing your serves from one spot and then not having to move back and forth and, and reposition yourself. It may give you benefits and it may throw your opponent off, but I, I find that in general, being able to place your serve from one spot is going to do you more good than having to move around to place it in different spots. Um, it, it, it tells your opponent where you're trying to aim. It makes you more predictable. And you're, you're going to be better off being able to place your serve from close to the hash mark instead of having to move around. Now in doubles, you should be standing farther out to the side, farther wide away from the hash mark, because after you serve, you need to cover your half of the court uh, when the return is hit. So on the deuce side, you should be standing far out towards uh, the side, pretty close to the single sideline. Typically, I would say I'm usually standing about two feet away from the sideline, the single sideline, um, to, to make my serve, both on the deuce side and on the ad side. I'm, I'm far out towards the single sideline, so that after I complete my serve, I can go straight in towards uh, the net strap at an angle and cover my half of the court. If I was going to serve from, from the hash mark, from the middle of the baseline, uh, let's say on the deuce side, after I hit my serve, I would have to move at an angle out to the right to cover any possible angle return that my opponent would hit. Now, the exception to this would be either if your opponent has a hard time hitting a certain spot. If your opponent can't hit a wide return, then uh, maybe moving more towards the center would make sense to, to cover down the middle return. Uh, and then your your partner is free to cover the alley and not have to worry about covering everything that goes down the middle. Also, if your uh, partner is going to poach, if they're going to cross in doubles and go over to your side to try to cut off a cross-court return, then maybe you could scoot over a little bit towards the hash mark so that it's easier for you to go behind them and cover their half of the court after they leave to try to cut off uh, the volley up at the net. So there's lots of different specific reasons While you might position yourself more towards one side or the other, it's good to be comfortable serving from anywhere on the baseline and to be able to place your serve uh, from anywhere across the baseline in different spots in the box. Because you never know when a situation might come up where your opponent has uh, a problem returning from a certain side 
or they have a problem aiming their return to, to a certain place, or maybe they're really, really good at returning to a certain place. And so moving yourself, moving your position from where you serve from is going to help you out. Um, it's always good to, to have options. And so I would suggest practicing from various different spots on the baseline. And from those spots on the baseline, practice hitting various different serves and different placements of serves so that you're comfortable doing whatever you have to do uh, to win, to gain advantage over your opponents. Bruce, hopefully that answers your question. If I can help you out any further, please let me know. Thanks very much for being a listener. Our next question today comes from Faye in Flagstaff. She says, Hi Ian, I have a question about the mental game. When I get into a game, the passion of play seems to cause me to forget all about my plans, even the simplest. I can't seem to remember to count after the bounce, watch the ball meet the racket, hold my head still through the hit, breathe or anything else, even if I plan on trying to work on just one thing per match. What can I do to keep my wits about me? Thanks. Well, Faye, you present a lot of different things there, and I completely understand where you're coming from. Um, My big challenge personally right now is my golf game. I've been working hard on trying to improve my golf, and one thing that all of us have in common, all, all of you out there that are listening and myself, because we enjoy doing this so much, because we enjoy tennis and love tennis so much, where we're constantly looking for that next thing to improve our game. And so very, very typically, those types of people, when they, when they go out and try to improve themselves, will, will grab onto anything they can that is beneficial. And all, all of a sudden, you have six or eight or ten things that you're working on at once, and it can all get jumbled up. And it actually ends up inhibiting your play. And, Faye, this is extremely common. Don't worry about it. And none of the things that you said in your question are bad things. They're all good things, and they'll help you improve your game. But here's here's what you need to do. All of those things that you're working on, first of all, you need to take them one at a time. And you mentioned this. You say that you even will try to, to work on one thing at a time during a match, and that's good. Um, it takes time and repetition to make something a habit and to make it automatic. Vic Braden talks about this in Mental Tennis, and he does scientific studies and research act- actually on how long it takes before you can actually record over uh, a previous habit. And it takes weeks and months before a new set of commands from your brain to your body will become automatic in a habit. So don't be frustrated that right away you're not seeing results and having everything just come together. It's going to take time. It's going to, it's going to take commitment to the game. So don't be frustrated by that. It's good to work on one thing at a time and then move on to the next after you've become successful at automatically doing something new. Now, that being said, I would very rarely recommend to anybody that you go out trying to accomplish something new, relatively speaking, during an actual match where it counts. It's competition and and you want to win. And the reason for that is you're simply going to confuse your mind. Uh, Your brain wants to fall back on what's comfortable in a pressure situation. When you go out and play and it counts, the, the first thing that your mind is going to want to do is whatever is automatic, whatever is muscle memory, whatever your habits are. And if you have a half a dozen old habits that aren't good for your game and you're trying to replace all six of those things with better habits all at the same time, you're going to have so many conflicting thoughts and, and physical actions that you're trying to accomplish all at the same time You're just going to fluster yourself mentally. And it's not that you're not a good tennis player. It's not that you're not a good athlete. Uh, It's just unrealistic. Your brain can't handle that many commands at once. On one hand, it's, it's, it's in a pressure situation. It's trying to fall back on what it's used to and what it's comfortable with. On the other hand, you know mentally 
that those things aren't the best and you're trying to replace them. And so you're consciously trying to accomplish them during a point, during a match. Uh, and that's not going to work. You're trying to do too much at once. So what you need to do is take those things you're working on and you need to save those for the practice court. And this is very hard for somebody who takes it seriously and for somebody who enjoys it a lot. It's very hard to separate those two things because when you go out and play a match, you want to do your best. And you know that if you accomplish X, Y, Z new skills, then you will play better and you'll have a better chance of winning. And it's hard to go out there where, where it counts and you want to do your best. And you know that if you do those things, you'll improve your game and you could play better this time than the last time. And then you try to do all those things together and you actually end up playing worse because you're, you're complicating things. Your, your brain is trying to figure out which set of commands to use. Uh, it, it, you start feeling pressure and then you even more so fall back on your old habits and then it's a tug of war back and forth. Um, and that's what's happening to you, Faye. And I, I just went out and played a round of golf today and I, I'm learning a new swing uh, technique. I, I've Really, over the last couple of weeks, I've completely changed my golf swing after taking a lesson from a great golf professional. And I know what I have to do now. It is so hard for me to go out and just play and just hit the ball. I want to analyze every single move I'm making. Um, and especially in golf, where you get to stand over the ball and just think, all right, what am I going to do now? It's so natural for me to want to analyze everything because it's what I, it's my job to analyze a swing. It's my job to analyze the technique of tennis players. And so I'm very aware of what my body is doing in a golf swing, and I'm trying to accomplish a certain thing. And yet I know that over the last couple of years, I, I've been doing the opposite. And my body and my mind is used to the opposite. And so when you, when you go and try to accomplish something completely different in a pressure situation where you know you have to hit a good shot, uh, things just end up getting too complicated and it's just too much. And so, Faye, it's hard. Uh, but when you go out there and play a match, you have to try to let those things go mentally and just go out and just try your best to just perform. Don't analyze while you're playing. Go out and just play. And between points, there's nothing wrong with saying, all right, well, I lost that point because... Uh, my head wasn't still, I wasn't watching the ball, I hit the frame, so I lost that point. There's nothing wrong with taking inventory and saying, okay, what am I doing well? What am I not, what am I not doing well? Uh, what am I doing poorly? And I really need to work on this next time I practice. There's nothing wrong with being aware of what you're doing well and what you're not doing well. But the problem comes in when you finish a point and you say, okay, on the next point, I'm going to change this about my technique or I'm going to change this about my, uh, about my game, about my strategy. Um, and, and then you've got conflicting thoughts going on. Now, as you get better and more comfortable with multiple skills, you'll be able to, after points, just go ahead and change over to a different type of swing. Maybe you'll hit a slice instead of topspin. Maybe you'll hit cross-court on that shot instead of down the line. After those things become automatic, You'll be able to change on the fly. But when you're just learning new skills, you can't do it. It's, it's too much to do at once. You'll be successful some of the time, but in the long run, you'll just be frustrated by your inability to do all those things together at once. So I'm not saying you can't do it, Faye, but when there are new skills you're trying to learn, you can't bring all those out there together and expect to be successful um, save the work on those new skills for the practice court. And then the more and more automatic they become, the more and more you can implement those skills into your match play. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, hopefully that's logical. Um, I, didn't even, I didn't even write notes on that question. I, I knew kind of what I wanted to say. Um, hopefully that helps you, Faye. Definitely write me back after you listen to, the, to this and let me know if it does make sense. And if I can help you in any way, the, these are the things, guys, that make the difference between 
really, really successful players and, and mediocre successfully players. Um, when you go out there and try to do too much, um, it's just very hard to be successful. Um, and so take what, you, what you're already good at, uh, take what you, you've already gotten pretty automatic with and use that in your match. Don't try to bring up new skills and, and uh, even, if, even though you know they might be better, um, if they're not already grooved in and already automatic, um, it's going to be real hard to, to be successful. Okay, thank you very much for the question. And thank you for being a listener. I appreciate your support. All right, another mental question here. I, I like mental questions. It's something I've worked on a lot myself in my own game. It's really probably what I've struggled with the most in my game. I've, I've had my fair share of technique struggles as well. I'm going through one with my backhand currently. Um, but... In general, mental issues are what I've struggled with the most as a player. So I, I like thinking about them and answering these questions. Um, here's a question from Steve. He writes and says, Ian, it's funny that you mentioned the mental aspect because that is probably what I struggle with most. You have helped me with several aspects of my game, by the way. The advice you give uh, to focus on contact for my backhand helped immensely last time I played. Steve had a question about his technique on his one-handed backhand last week. Steve, that's great that that, that uh, advice helped you out. Keep on working hard at that. I'm sure it'll keep getting better. On to my struggle. I have trouble playing match tennis. I can rally all day long at a pretty high level, have good technique on all my strokes. I'm still learning. And the pro at our courts has told me that I have a pretty complete all-court game and should be winning handily over most 3.5 to 4.0 players in our area. That being said, I have been losing badly to these guys. It seems when I am in a match, I am either too impatient to get, uh, to get the point over, go for too much on a, on a particular shot, or just play like my hair is on fire and make terrible unforced errors. <laughs> By the way, Steve, I, I laughed out loud uh, when I read that comment about playing like your hair is on fire. Um, hopefully I have your permission to use that in my teaching. Um, I definitely see those kind of mistakes all the time. And that's a, that's a great way of explaining that, uh, describing it actually. I'm, I am great against players that give me pace, but when I get dinked or the ball or get a ball that I should put away easily, all too often I fall apart. I think I know what I need to do to win, but making it happen on the court is not happening. Um, and he goes on and says a couple other things as well about not being mentally fit and says he's going to get Vic Braden's mental tennis. That's good. Um, thanks again for the advice that you have given me so far. You have been spot on with all your help, and I'm most appreciative. Long distance student, Steve. All right, Steve. Well, I uh, actually qu answered a question very similar to this last week. Um, and again, like I explained last, I think it was last week, this is a big hurdle for all players when they get to about a 3.5 or a 4.0 level. Making the jump to a 4.5 or a 5.0 5, a 5 level, uh, the biggest hurdle for a lot of players is just being able to make a confident, aggressive swing without going too far overboard and making a lot of mistakes. And what you describe is very common. You, ha you have a good understanding of technique. Your swings are good and competent. However, um, you get that easy shot and you just fall apart. And so simply what you need is practice hitting weak shots. You need to find somebody that can feed, that, that will give you uh, shots with a little pace that lands short in the court. And you need to go out and just practice hitting confidently and aggressively over and over to specific targets. Um, and that's all you have to do. Well, I mean, I'm making it sound simple, but that's the most important thing you need to do. Uh, Steve said later in his email that I, I omitted a little, a little bit, he said that he plans on playing a lot of singles this summer and getting a lot of match experience. That's great. Do that. The more experience you can get and the more practice and repetition you can get, the higher level of confidence you will have. And confidence is a big thing 
knowing that you can take that weak shot and put it in play is huge. However, not only is the confidence going to help you, but you're going to learn quickly exactly how aggressively you can hit the ball while still maintaining control. Um, if you're at a 4.0 level right now, you can be aggressive to a certain point and still control the outcome of, of the shot. If we go on a 1 to 10 scale, if, if 10 is as hard as you could possibly hit a forehand ground stroke and 1 is weak and tentative and soft, I would bet that the most you can control right now is probably like a 7 out of 10, maybe 7.5 out of 10 before you start making more errors than, than you, shots that you make. But you need to find out exactly how aggressively you can hit the ball and still make 7 or 8 out of 10 shots uh, without making so many errors that being aggressive makes no sense because you actually beat yourself. So your job is to find somebody that will hit with you, um, that will dink the ball. Find somebody who is a dinker and go out and just play practice set after practice set. And you might lose to them 6-1, 6-1 the first time. Fine. You need to get out and get experience playing these types of players. Um, Find out exactly how aggressive you can be while maintaining control and gain confidence being aggressive against a weakly hit shot. But if you keep going out there and just blasting away at every shot because it's easy and you think you're good enough to put all those shots in play, you're going to make so many mistakes that you'll end up beating yourself. And that's extremely frustrating. And again, Steve, very, very common thing, uh, theme. Um, you're not alone in this. A lot of other players are having the same problem trying to move up in level right around your level of play. <clears throat> you have the strokes, um, but you need to continue to develop them to gain consistency even while you're being aggressive. So get out there, get repetition against a dinker. Find somebody who can feed weak balls to you so that you can get repetition, being aggressive, and go out and get match experience. Practice playing players that are weaker than you, but get a lot of balls back in play. Uh, all right, hopefully that answers your question, Steve. Thanks very much. It's a very, very good question, very, very relevant question to everybody listening. Um, unless you're already past a 4 level and you're playing 5 tennis, um, th- this is a topic that's very, very important. So thanks very much for bringing it up, Steve, and thanks for your support in the podcast. Okay, our next question comes from Kent. Kent says, Ian, I have a stupid question. You may or may not want to use it, and I'm cool either way. When I go to my first tournament next month, how do I warm up with the other player? Is there a protocol? I've seen the pros uh, warm-ups, but didn't know if there was a set schedule or what have you. I know we hit some balls back and forth, but what about serving? Do we just serve to opposite sides, or do we practice returning each, each other's serve? Any help you can provide so I don't like a total noob would be appreciated. <laughs> All right, Kent, great question. Uh, no, that's not a stupid question. And yes, I'd love to use it in the podcast. Um, yeah, I, a, a lot of people who are listening to this podcast are beginner to intermediate players. And a lot of you guys are writing and saying you're already playing tournaments, and that's great. If you're a 2-5 or a 3-0 player, even a 3-5 player, and you're already competing at USTA tournaments, that's outstanding. It's great you're getting out there and already starting to compete. Um, A lot of players don't have the confidence to go out and do that when they're at a 2-5 to to 3-5 level. Um, So that's awesome, Kent, that you're getting out to play your first serious tournament. I, I hope you have a good time. Now, yes, there is a protocol. And uh, every match I've played has followed this uh, certain series of, of practice. And uh, I'll give it to you here. And uh, First thing I'm going to say is that a warm-up consists of cooperative hitting. You are, you are trying to help each other out, get prepared for the match. So when you go out there and warm up with your opponents, the worst thing you can do is take every shot and hit it aggressively away from them. You're, you're trying to be cooperative. You're, you're trying to work with your opponent to get the best warm-up possible. 
the way you guys are going to warm up best is by keeping lots of balls in play back and forth to get comfortable, to get into a rhythm. Um, if you hit a winner, you're not going to get any practice either. So the first thing you need to realize is that a good warm-up in tennis should be cooperative hitting. Obviously, once the warm-up is over, that goes out the window, and then you're trying to be competitive. But during the warm-up, you're trying to work with your opponent to get as many shots back and forth as possible so that you can make the best use of your time and get as comfortable as you can. It's not just for their benefit, it's for yours as well. Now, if you're playing singles, here's the protocol. Uh, you start off in the middle of the baseline, just a down-the-middle rally. And typically that'll last uh, four, maybe five minutes, depending on how you're feeling that day. Um, and you'll just rally ground stroke to ground stroke for at least a couple minutes. Um, after a couple minutes, one player usually takes a turn uh, one at a time coming up to the net. And again, you're being cooperative. They'll come up to halfway between the service line and the net, right in the, right in the middle of the court, and you're going to hit volleys back to your opponent who's back on the baseline. And so now you're warming up your net game. Uh, so you'll hit volleys, and again, you're trying to cooperate. So you're, you're going to aim past the service line and down the middle of the court so that the ball can get back to your opponent on one bounce, and they can hit back to you. You're trying to keep a rally going back and forth. So you're going to warm up your volleys, aiming down the middle, and again, trying to make your volleys bounce past the service line so that they don't have to be running up and back and side to side trying to get your volleys back. Um, and, and if you do, you know, you're going to miss some shots. That's fine. You're, maybe you'll put some away on accident. Um, no problem. You don't have to apologize. Um, now, if you do it over and over, and it, they might think you're doing it on purpose, then I would just, you know, put your hand up, just say sorry, and keep on trying to hit back to them. After you hit some volleys, uh, ask them to, to hit you some lobs and take overheads. And again, you're trying to hit back to them. There's nothing wrong with hitting it aggressively, uh, but aim back to them. And depending on how comfortable they are, they're either going to just stop the ball in front of them and lob it up again, or if they have relatively good hands, they'll take your overhead and keep on putting it back up in the air to give you overhead practice. And after that, uh, you'll back up to the baseline and they'll come up to the net. And now it's your job to take your ground strokes and aim back to them so that they can warm up their volleys. Then they'll ask you to give them some overheads. You'll put some lobs up in the air. and They're, they're going to hit their overhead probably back to you. And you can either stop the ball with your racket and then drop it and, and lob it back up into the air. Or um, you can go ahead and take their overhead and just put it back up into the air as a lob to give them some practice hitting overheads. After each of you has done a baseline rally, and after each of you has gone up to the net and hit volleys and overheads with the other person at the baseline, um, then you guys will go ahead and hit serves. Now, typically, uh, you're going to start off just hitting serves, meaning you're going to hit the three balls uh, as a serve to your opponent, and they're going to stop the ball with their racket, put it in their pocket, and then when they get all three of the balls, they'll hit serves over to you, and you'll hit uh, those the three or two balls that you have at a time as serves and the other person will stop the balls put them in their pocket so that they can serve back to you after you've repeated that a couple times and you're both getting relatively uh, warmed up and loose with your serve it's perfectly fine to go ahead and hit a couple returns back to them typically that signals that you're done hitting serves on that side and you're you're ready you're, you're ready to go over to the ad side and hit some serves there some players will say, I'm fine, I don't need to hit serves on the ad side, I, uh, my serve is fine. Um, if you want to hit serves on the ad side, then say, all right, well, I'm going to take some on the ad side, that's perfectly fine. In fact, I would recommend you definitely hit serves from both sides. Um, and again, you'll go through that process of hitting to them, and they'll stop the ball and then serve the balls back to you. Or if their serve is already warmed up, then they'll just go ahead and hit returns back at you. And you can stop the ball and continue to hit serves until you're warmed up on both sides. Now, if you feel like you want to hit returns, there's absolutely nothing wrong with asking them to hit you a couple more serves so you can take some returns. Uh, this is your time. You should feel comfortable. If you don't feel comfortable uh, with a certain stroke, there's nothing wrong with asking them to give you a couple more. If you've gone through the whole warm-up and 
you think, you know what, my volleys just didn't feel very good. Just say, go, hey, you know what, I'd, I'd like to get some more volleys, please. And unless they're an unreasonable person, they're going to say, okay, that's fine. And you'll go up to the net and hit a couple more volleys. Now, typically, you only get 10 minutes to do all this. So I would go through each of these steps in about three minutes or so, two or three minutes. Uh, if you need more time on a specific thing, then maybe spend three or four but you don't want to take up too much time and not get to warm up a certain uh, stroke if there's a roving umpire who's going to keep you on the clock. Um, some officials aren't going to care if you go a little bit over 10 minutes. At other, at other tournaments, they're going to be standing there with a stopwatch, and you have 10 minutes. And when that 10 minutes is up, you are going to start to play. And if you haven't hit one serve yet, then too bad. So uh, I would practice doing this in 10 minutes to make sure that you're able to get everything in and you're able to be comfortable with every shot that you have. Kent, hopefully that, that covers it for you. Um, that's, that's the protocol I've followed for every match I've played, both serious competition and friendly competition. It's the same for doubles as well. There's just two players on each side. The important thing is that you want to hit a little bit of every kind of shot so that you're ready to go and you're not leaving anything in the bag, so to speak, and have to pull it out all of a sudden and, and hit it on the spot. You want to make sure you get a little bit of everything warmed up before you start your match. Thanks a lot, Kent, uh, for the question. And let me know how that goes. Uh, you, you don't say here when the tournament is. Yeah, you do. You say next month. Uh, so let me know how that goes. I, I'd be happy to hear how you do. All right, our next question comes from Charles L., he says, this is more of a generic question. What are the most common kinds of problems you see from beginners? The thing they should fix if they want to make the most progress. My friend has just realized he hits so many shots long, he's been playing mini tennis more to control the depth of his shots. Any other uh, observations, Charles L. Well, Charles, you bring one up right there that your friend has. That's a very common thing. Beginners, when they make a swing and hit the ball too far, assume that they just hit the ball too hard. And so they think that in order to control the ball and keep it in play, they're going to have to slow down. And that's a big, big misconception among beginner players. I never teach anybody to slow their swing down unless they're just out of control and wild and, and swinging way too big, which I do see sometimes, but not in beginner players. Uh, mo more often than not, beginner players are going to be tentative, and that means that they're going to have short, restricted swings. They're going to be kind of tight and tense. And when the ball goes long, it's not from hitting too hard. It simply means their racket face was too open. And I, I'm assuming that you're talking about ground strokes here. When you hit a ground stroke too far, it means your racket face was too open. Uh, or that you made too horizontal of a swing and you're just swinging forwards, which eventually the ball will go out. If you're making an upward swing and your racket faces flat at contact, that will cause topspin. It will give rotation to the ball as you hit upwards across the back of the ball. The ball will turn over back towards uh, their opponent's side and that will cause the ball to drop into the court. If you make an upward swing towards the ball and your racket is facing upwards, even slightly, if you swing a little bit too hard, it'll go out. Now you can fix that in two ways. You can either slow your swing down, that will put less momentum on the ball, and the ball won't travel as far. That'll fix it, technically. Uh, the ball won't go as far, and it'll, it'll stay on the court. But that means that your friend is now stuck at that speed forever. <laughs> As long as he keeps using that technique, as long as he keeps keeping the ball in play by slowing down, he will never advance his game, at least not in terms of technique and being able to hit the ball more aggressively. If, if every time he misses lawn, he fixes it by slowing down, then he will be stuck at a certain level his entire life. I see this all the time where people develop these, these restricted short swings, their defensive swings trying to keep the ball in play, and they never learn how to hit topspin. They never learn how to hit the ball more aggressively um, because they get stuck being scared for every swing. Uh, that's not 
that that's not going to develop your game. That's not going to make your friend develop as a player. He's going to be stuck, and I don't want that. So you need to advise him to keep a lawn swing for every ground stroke. If the ball goes lawn, it means his racket face is too open. His strings are facing upwards too much, and he needs to close his face but maintain a lawn swing, a lawn upward swing. He should be swinging upwards at the ball. Now, other uh, general mistakes that beginners make, a huge one is hitting off center and making poor contact. That doesn't necessarily mean hitting the frame and not hitting the strings at all, but hitting off the middle of the racket and up towards the sides, towards the frame, kills the potential of your shot. And beginners rarely realize that's why they actually missed. So that's a, a big common mistake that I see is beginners will hit the frame and then say, oh, I hit the ball too softly. Uh, when their technique was fine, they didn't hit too softly at all. They just didn't hit the strings, and so the ball didn't make it over. And then the other one is one I just described. They'll hit too far and say, oh, I hit the ball too hard, and they'll slow down. Rather than making the technique change that will keep the ball in play, while being able to hit a confident swing. I'll just keep it there for now, Charles. Um, it, it's different for everybody, uh, to, to answer your question broadly. Different people are going to struggle with different things. Different people have different amounts of skill and athleticism, and they're going to struggle with one thing more than another. Um, and that's the challenge of teaching, is everybody's going to have something else that's tripping them up. And so to be a good teacher, it's my job to quickly realize what their biggest problem is and try to fix that first and then go to the next thing. Uh, fixing a problem that's not the main issue, uh, it will show improvement, but in, in the long run, not as much improvement and not as big, as, not as big of a change of improvement and not as quickly uh, a change of improvement as finding a root problem. To, uh, to a certain result that's not wanted. Charles, thanks for your question. I appreciate you supporting the podcast. Thanks for being a listener. All right, guys, our last question for today comes from Charles G. And if you've been listening to the Essential Tennis Podcast for the last couple weeks, or really from the beginning, you probably feel like you're getting to know Charles G. pretty well. Um, he was one of the first people who asked me a question for the podcast, and he's really been doing a great job improving his game over the last several weeks, but getting closer and closer to beating his practice partner. And he had a question about grips. He says, during your podcast, you mentioned Western, semi-Western, etc. Some people like myself don't really know what all the grips are as it, as it relates to where your hand is on the racket. Um, Charles, yeah, that's something I've thought about while doing the podcast, and it's something that I'm going to address in a video lesson that hopefully I'll be doing soon. Uh, if you guys go to EssentialTennis.com, you'll see that there's a page that says Video Lessons, and that's something that I'm going to get started on uh, relatively soon. It's something that's time-consuming. But certain things like different grips and showing different uh, techniques for swings, that's really just the best way to do it. There's no substitute for actually seeing what you're supposed to be doing. And having a, a video lesson on grips is going to be probably one of the first ones I'm going to do. So, Charles, you'll have to be patient rather than trying to explain it through words, which can be a little a little bit difficult. I'm going to wait and make that probably my first video lesson for EssentialTennis.com. So I'll wait for that, Charles. I'll, I'll let you know when I'm working on it. Hopefully by the end of July, I'll have my first couple lessons up that you guys will be able to view. Haven't worked out exactly how that's going to work yet, but don't worry, I'm working on it. As am I working on several other things to make EssentialTennis.com even more of a benefit to you guys. Okay, lastly today, I'm just going to finish up with a couple of encouraging comments that I've gotten from a couple different listeners. 
first one is from Roy. Roy sent me a message through the website saying, Hi, I just wanted to tell you that I was listening to your podcast about approach shots and approaching the net, and it was very helpful. I actually listened while driving to a tennis tournament I was playing. I used that technique, and it definitely helped me win a few extra points. Thanks. And I sent a quick note back to Roy, thanking him for taking the time to write to me. And he wrote back again and, and sent me a link to the organization that he's playing a tournament with and said, um, we're just a bunch of adults having the time of our lives playing a sport we love. I'm fairly new to the game, but I have a huge passion for it. FYI, I forwarded your web address to all my tennis friends, and hopefully they'll start listening to your podcast and benefit from all your very helpful tips. Thank you, Ian. Well, that, that's exactly what I'm going for with the podcast is there's, there's so many people out there who have a passion for tennis. They love it, and guys like Roy are out there trying to get better as much as possible, and those are the people I'm trying to reach. So, Roy, thanks very much for your feedback. I really appreciate it, and I really appreciate you forwarding my information to your friends as well. That's how the that's how the podcast and the website are growing. People with a passion for tennis are getting help through the podcast. They're improving their games through good advice and through hard work, and they're spreading the word, and that's very encouraging to me. So, Roy, thanks very much for taking the time to write. I really appreciate it, and if I can ever help you in any way, if you ever have any questions please don't hesitate to let me know. And finally here, we have a note from Charles G. And he wrote me an email, I think it was either this morning or, or last night, saying that he finally won his first set off his practice partner, which is awesome. Um, he originally came to me with a question uh, wondering why he was getting, getting run around so much by his opponent uh, we've been we've been working on using the directionals and hitting cross court more, along with several other things that have improved his game. And he won a set for the first time the other day, six two, against this person who's been just taking it to him for a while now. I wrote back to him and asked him what the difference was, um, how was he able to win, and he said, I think it was just a combination of several things. First, my conditioning and strokes are improving as the summer goes on. I'm in better shape. My partner plays indoors in the winter, and I do not, so I'm closing the gap physically. I also have been applying a lot of your advice. I'm hitting deeper and cross-court more often. My backhand has improved to the point where he cannot just bully my backhand on big points. I also decided to hit out more. I push much less. I'm holding my serve more, thanks to your advice. Charles, it's great. It was really, really good to hear from you earlier today. And I'm really happy for you that you've made so many great improvements to your game. And we're seeing physical, you know, tangible results now. There's proof that, that it works. Get good advice, go out and practice, get better at, at essential things to your tennis. And this is how you become a better player. Uh, so, Charles, thanks a lot for, for writing to me, and I'm very happy that you're being more successful now. And keep on letting me know how you're doing. I wrote him another email back saying, well, our, our next step now is to start beating him on a regular basis. Um, and that's that's our next goal. So, great job, Charles, and thanks a lot for letting me know how you're doing. You're, you're doing a great job. Keep up the good work, and thanks for continuing uh, to listen to the podcast. All right, guys, that does it for episode number 11 of the Essential Tennis Podcast. A couple reminders here at the bottom of the hour. Make sure that you guys send me your questions for Dr. Jack Kripsack. Um, let me know your questions on injuries or preventing injuries or maybe, or maybe hydration, anything that has to do with sports medicine. He, he's a, a licensed medical doctor in sports medicine, so uh, send those questions to me during this week, and we're going to be recording our interview on Sunday. So if you get me your questions before this coming Sunday, I'll be able to ask him, and you'll be able to hear his response to your question during episode number 12 of the Essential Tennis Podcast. Also, if you would like a free set of string, head on over to 
the iTunes Music Store, leave me a review there, and send me your address, and I will get you a free set of strain. That's it for today. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Um, those of you who have been following the Essential Tennis Podcast and are subscribing and listening on a regular basis, thanks very much. You, are, you guys are all encouraging me a great deal to keep on working hard at this and making it better. And together, hopefully we can all continue to, to improve our games. So thanks very much, everybody. Have a great week. Take care and good luck with your tennis. 